Well, good morning, everyone. You can be turning open to Zechariah chapter 13 in your Bibles. We have uh, this week and next left in our study of Zechariah. And just to kind of help you know where we're going, where I believe the Lord's leading us in terms of our sermon series, uh, we will after this series, do a series on peace. Just uh, the sense that's coming to me is just sensing God's peace in our chaos. Uh, when, when, whether chaos is happening to us or we're choosing chaos, which happens, uh, but just that we would be settled in the Lord's peace as we're experiencing life, and that'll take us through Easter. And then uh, the Lord's been, just I've had a, a series on my heart for several months about a series on calling, just to remind us of our call as disciples, but how that's uniquely expressed through our lives, in our jobs, in our homes. Uh, so that's what's coming up here in the next uh, few <clears throat> few months. Then after that, it's going to actually be a study on First Timothy. So we have a, I like to plan. If y'all haven't figured that out about me, I like to have a plan, and the Lord was faithful in supplying a plan for me this week as I was seeking him. Uh, Zechariah 13, <coughs> follow, he would as I read the Lord's word. On that day, there shall be a fountain opened for the house of David and the inhabitants of, of Jerusalem to cleanse them from sin and uncleanness. And on that day, declares the Lord of hosts, I will cut off the names of the idols of the land so that, that they shall be remembered no more. And also I will remove from the land the prophets and the spirit of uncleanness. And if anyone again prophesies, his father and mother who bore him will say to him, you shall not live, for you speak lies in the name of the Lord. And his father and mother who bore him shall pierce him through when he prophesies. On that day, every prophet will be ashamed of his vision when he prophesies. He will, put on, <clears throat> he will not put on a hairy cloak in order to deceive, but he will say, I am no prophet. I am a worker of the soil, for, the man sold me, for a man sold me in my youth. And if one asks him, what are these wounds on your back? He will say, the wounds I received in the house of my friends. Awake, O sword, against my shepherd, against the man who stands next to me, declares the Lord of hosts. Strike the shepherd, and the sheep will be scattered. I will turn my hand against the little ones. In the whole land, declares the Lord, two-thirds will be cut off and perish, and one-third shall be left alive. And I will put this third into the fire and refine them as one refined silver and test them as gold is tested. They will call upon my name and I will answer them. I will say they are my people and they will say the Lord is my God. Holy Spirit, we ask for your power of illumination to be with us so we might see Jesus and experience your word. Amen. You know, this book has been filled with some very bizarre visions and imagery. In this chapter, I don't know if you caught it, in verse 5, a father and mother pierce through their own son who's prophesying. That's some bizarre stuff. And it, it's not only bizarre to us, this is how Zechariah's audience heard his preaching too. They were scratching their heads and they were, they were meeting in community groups saying, what, what, what was that about? What happened? How, how do we put this? What, do we, what sense are we to make of this? 
But God was behind something as he's doing all of these bizarre things. Ultimately, this book at the end of the Old Testament, look, we have Zechariah, then Malachi, and then that's the end of the Old Testament, and you've got Matthew next. Now, there's, between Malachi and Matthew, 400 years intersperses there or separates the two. But when you look at the end of the Old Testament together, much of the story of God up to this point gives clues about the purpose of all of what the Old Testament is, about the law and the life of God's people. But all through it, God is working His plan. He's behind it all. He's working His plan through the ups and downs and curvy path of God's people since Adam and Eve were kicked out of the garden for their rebellion. God's been on a rescue mission since that point. When He said, get out, here's your judgment, and then clothe them, remember, with animal skins? When they tried to sew fig leaves together, he says, that's not sufficient. I'm going to be the sacrifice. I'm going to clothe you. We pick that up in this chapter as well. Big story of the Old Testament is how God took a people for his own, a rebellious people, people who weren't looking for God. He took a people for himself. He gave them parameters. He gave them laws to keep them fenced in so they would experience his presence. So that's why rules and parameters are not a bad thing because it keeps us experiencing good. God gave his law to his people so they'd experience his presence. But Adam and Eve sins with everybody, passed it down to all their children, and we just like to be rebellious and do our own thing and step out of those parameters and, do, and seek what we think is going to give us comfort and security rather than God. So he gathers a people, he gives them parameters to keep them as his people, and then he sets them in a home in Jerusalem under the rule of a king. And those kings should have been benevolent kings. They should have been examples, like David was, of a man who had a heart after God, who had God's heart for his people. Still, God, he, he not only perseveres with rebellious people, he guarantees a greater and better relationship with them. The book of Zechariah points to how God will bring about his promise. He would send his son, the Messiah, to suffer and be pierced through to gather his people to him in the light of his glory. Where law cannot keep them, his spirit will keep them in his presence. The path of God's people in their relationship with him has been a winding one. It's been a curvy path. It's been smooth at times, but it's been rough mostly at others. Zechariah's audience wondered if God would, would even want to give up on them. They saw no way forward, and with each step, God was graciously communicating that their path was progressing toward a renewed relationship with him. He's saying there's hope. Keep on going. I'm going to settle this, and you're going to have a relationship with me that's going to be beyond anything you can imagine. Now, the path of God's people is not just for Old Testament people. It's for us as well. Our path with God, it winds, it curves, it rises. We have seasons where it's encouraging and things are going great. And then we have valleys. We have these falls that bring discouragement and disillusionment, darkness, depression. Now, no matter where we are in our journey, if we're experiencing a season of encouragement or seasons of discouragement, no matter where we are, God is graciously pointing all of us to the light of the glory of Jesus. And the progress of the Christian life, if we want to know if we're making ground in the Christian life, it's asking this question, is Jesus showing up more in my everyday life? Is his light and life 
showing up in me? Is it showing up in my thoughts and my decisions and my relationships with people, my words, my actions, my, my affections? Is, is Jesus showing up in me? That's how we are to progress. Last chapter, we saw the shining light of Jesus' ministry and his upcoming sacrifice of being pierced through. It was foreshadowed in this chapter, which is chapter 12 through 14, is all one big sermon of Zechariah. It tells us of what life will be like for those who turn and trust Christ for salvation. Where last chapter pointed to what Jesus did for us, this chapter is telling us what Jesus is to us. Here's the relationship that we're going to have with Jesus when it's restored. But ultimately, it means this. Here's our main point. Jesus is the foundation that sustains us and the fire that sanctifies us. Sanctifies us, makes us more and more like him. In the first six verses, we, we have uh, the, the aspect of a fountain being opened. And it's very, when we're reading the Old Testament, we have to look for clues. And you look for things that you've, you know you've read in the New Testament. And they're mentioned in the Old Testament. Now, remember, Zechariah whole bunch of cross-references in the New Testament. Jesus said, strike the, sheep and, strike the shepherd and the sheep will be scattered. But fountain and fire are, are two aspects that per, should, should perk our interest to say, wait a minute, I see those all over Scripture, and we investigate them. The day the Messiah would be pierced through would bring, as we saw in last chapter, uh, would bring grace and pleas for mercy. The pleas for mercy shown... By the mourning, there was a lot of mourning. No blame shifting, but mourning in the, that concluded the last chapter. And then right after that, so right after this mourning, God's saying, on that day there shall be a fountain opened for the house of David. It's, his, it's more grace. It's his spirit of grace that he's giving out. Only grace can bring us to the point of asking for mercy, but God shows more grace by opening a fountain for those who mourn and repent and trust him. But catch this. God is that fountain. God will open himself to those who repent for salvation. He referred to himself as a fountain of living waters in Jeremiah 2, verse 13. For my people have committed two evils. They have forsaken me, the fountain of living waters, and hewed out cisterns for themselves, broken cisterns that can hold no water. There is the essence of sin in everyone. And we see it referenced in Romans chapter 1 with we exchange the glory of God, we take glory from God, and we give it to a created thing. And we worship the created thing rather than the creator. This exchange he's talking about, you've forsaken me, the fountain of living waters, you've hewed out cisterns for yourself. And we do that. We go to things that we think, God, you're not sufficient for me. You're not everything I want. I'm going to go uh, to, the, I'm going to create something, and whether it's money or success or, or some addiction. We're going to give ourselves to this. But we put some water in it, and it just trickles out. Put more water in it, and it trickles out. And somehow we think that that's better than going to the fountain of living waters. But God refers to himself as a fountain. This fountain would be open, and it would be first to cleanse from sin and uncleanness. I think the cleansing has an aspect of, of what God did for Adam and Eve in clothing them with animal skins and what, what he did. We saw the vision in chapter 3 of Joshua on a single day. The filthy garments were taken off of Joshua the high priest and new garments were put on him. Pure vestments were put on him. It's a symbol of what God does to us in justification when we trust him for salvation. When we place our faith in him, he takes all of the sin away, cleanses us, 
and puts it on. So we, we wear a righteousness. The cleansing aspect would have been, would made sense for Zechariah as a priest because the priests would always wash themselves. They would bathe their bodies before they would offer sacrifices. But all of the outward washings of the Old Testament and the sacrificial system, all of them were always to show what God would eventually do inwardly for his people. The cleansing from sin and uncleanness would not simply be a bath to clean dirt off. This cleansing would be a cleansing of the heart to free us from sin's domination and sin's tyranny so we can know God's love deep in our souls. We have a fountain that cleanses and that fountain becomes a sustaining fountain that we are to go back to. Jesus' death on the cross for us took our inward evil and he paid for it outwardly. And we trust in his outward expression and then he does something on the inside of us. He clothes us. We're declared righteous. That's the essence of justification. We are clothed with righteousness. Now we are called to progress in that righteousness, which is called sanctification. Now, we don't do holy things in order to get God's righteousness. We do holy things because we have received his righteousness. It's already in us. It's already upon us. We want to walk it out. But we sang about this this morning. God doesn't leave us on our own to progress in that righteousness. It's not as if, and, and we treat it that way, we treat it as if Jesus did his thing, now it's my turn to do my thing. And we end up doing, trying to do holy things try to gain God's acceptance, not as a result of his acceptance. He doesn't leave us alone. He gives us himself in that open fountain. Jesus then points to himself as a fountain that sustains, a fountain of living waters. Jesus picks that up in John chapter uh, 4 when he's talking with the woman at the well. But whoever drinks of the water that I give him will never be thirsty again. The water that I give him will become in him a spring of water welling up to eternal life. In John 7, on the last day of the feast, the great day, Jesus stood up and cried out, If anyone thirsts, let him come to me and drink. See what he said privately to this woman? He's saying now publicly in Jerusalem, whoever believes in me, as the Spirit has said, out of his heart will flow rivers of living water. When we go to the fountain, Jesus is there. He gives us something on the inside of us and causes it to flow out. God's the fountain of living waters that he opens up through Jesus. John makes that connection, I think, in uh, the end of the book when he's talking about Jesus up on the cross. We looked at it last week where the, the uh, guards come and pierce him in his side. And John said water, uh, blood and water flowed. I think the dual aspect of that blood and water, the blood that cleanses from sin so we can be justified. But also the water now that sustains us in our life. Where does it come from? It comes from Jesus' heart. Because that's, that's what they pierced. The blood cleanses us from sin. The water it starts the flow of those living waters for all who would be saved. Now, if we keep on thinking about this with this, God says the fountain of living waters, and Jesus says these living waters will then become a river, river of living water. You think back to Ezekiel 47 when Ezekiel sees a heavenly temple, and from, from that temple, from the threshold, he says, and I think this is a picture of the sacrifice of Christ, we have a river flowing. But as it keeps on flowing, it increases in, in its intensity. It increases in its effect. 
and how wide it gets. And God told Ezekiel to go out in that river, and he said at first it was ankle deep, and then it was knee deep, and then it was waist deep, and then it was a river that he couldn't stand up in. It was carrying him along. Church, I believe this is a description of how we are to be walking with the Spirit. He is to be carrying us along. But I think, I think oftentimes we think we're being carried along only when we're ankle deep. Because we think since we feel something in our feet, you know, you feel something in your feet. You feel hot and cold. Your whole body feels it when you feel it in your feet. That's why like people do massages on their feet. They feel it like there's all these tension things, nerves in the feet. We think we have a fuller aspect or a, a fuller experience than we really do. Do we really exist in the Christian life just ankle deep? Well, I go to church. I try to read my Bible. I try to pray. Uh, I'm going, going to community group when I can. I just, I just a lot of life going on. Are those, are those, we have to listen to those excuses for just being ankle deep, thinking that that now is normal for the Christian life. We should be carried along in the rivers of living water that the Holy Spirit is inside of us. We are to drink in this fountain and we are to swim in this fountain. The fountain is in us, but it also needs to be accessed by us. It's in us, but we need to go to it. In our moments of despair, our moments of discouragement, disillusionment, depression, where do we go? We typically have a, an escape route that we will use if darkness begins to set in. But is that escape route, the fountain of living waters, that's where we should go? As I was preparing this, uh, I was reminded of the story of William Cooper, who was a poet who lived in the 1700s, and he battled depression his entire life. His mother died when he was six, and it put him on a course of depression and despair to the point he, he attempted suicide three times. And after the last time, he ended up in an insane asylum. While he was in his deepest despair and despondency, God showed up to him through some godly friends. Cooper trusted Christ, and he felt the living waters in him. But his struggle with depression continued. To cope with his depression, here's what he did. He would go to that fountain. He would go to Jesus over and over again to be lifted and sustained, even if the lifting was minuscule compared to the depth that he was feeling. He had to go to Jesus. It was out of his experience that he wrote the hymn that we sang this morning, There is a Fountain Filled with Blood. He went to the fountain. Look at it again. There is a fountain filled with blood drawn from Emmanuel's veins. And sinners plunge beneath that flood, lose all their guilty stains. The dying thief rejoiced to see that fountain in his day. And there have I, though vile as he, washed all my sin away. Dear dying lamb, thy precious blood shall never lose its power till all the ransomed church of God are safe to sin no more. Ere since by faith I saw the stream, thy flowing wounds supply, redeeming love has been my theme and shall be till I die. When we go to the fountain of living waters and experience the welling up of that river and we're carried along, redemption is our theme. Dear friends, you go to the fountain of living waters when life turns in on you. You go to the a fountain 
to be swept away in its flow. When we go to the fountain, we, we feel the effects of that living water in our emotions, in our thoughts, and in our relationships. We feel, we feel comfort in the midst of sorrow. We feel joy in the midst of financial crisis. Now, that doesn't make sense in our minds. I'm stressed. I don't know what to do. But yet I have this joy that God is going to supply. Relational tension. I don't know how it goes, but I have a peace that God is still sovereign. He's in control. and He's going to bring about his good through my experience. That's the way. That's the effect of that fountain as we drink of its waters and experience it being carried away. But our affections are different. Our thoughts are different. Our relationships are different. I think that's what verses 2 through 6 point to. The effect of the fountain shows up by God's removal of idols. He takes the idols away. Idols are things that we place that are, that are in our hearts that we give more time, attention, sacrifice to more than God. God says, I'm going to take all of those away. And how, how often we've tried to shoo all the idols away in our hearts, but he's the one. He says he will do it. He restores our affections where we've given our affections over to physical things or imagination or emotions. He restores our affections and makes even makes the memories of, of, of our mistakes, he makes them fade away. His promise is that the idols' names shall not be remembered. We live in and around a spirit of uncleanness where we need that fountain to keep us cleansed and pure and holy. That fountain captures our affections. The effect of that fountain shows up also in a yearning for truth that affects our minds. God will remove the prophets to remove competing voices. And we have competing voices. Whether it's simply they exist only in our own heads, we have competing voices. But God's promise is that his truth will win and it will remain. No prophet will have a chance to speak a self-centered prophecy. God's voice will be heard. This is great hope for us today. Because in our minds we struggle. What should I do? We, this is a promise that we can have our thoughts cleansed. And we can have our thoughts cleared by the fountain of living water so we can tune into God's voice. God, will you, will you hush the chaos of my mind so I can hear you? Will you hush the chaos of culture? And every time we tune in, Lord, I don't want that to have an, uh, uh, an opposite effect on my soul where it's actually, it's actually not promoting truth in me, it's promoting unbelief. God's promise is that he will void out all the competing voices of our minds, and even imitators will be silenced. You know, the, the devil comes to us as an angel of light. He wants to sound like God, but he doesn't want to, he doesn't want to remind us of the promises of God. When, when God says through Zechariah that uh, wearing a hairy cloak in verse 4, he will not put on a hairy cloak in order to deceive they were mimicking, that's, I think it's a reference to the prophets mimicking Elijah. The prophet Elijah wore a cloak of camel's hair. So did John the Baptist. That's why Jesus makes the connection with those. But he, he wears a cloak of camel hair. And so everybody else is putting that on like, all right, I got, I got God's word. I got something to say. And you look through the history of the Old Testament with all the kings, the evil kings, they just surrounded themselves with yes-men prophets that would tell them everything they wanted to hear. 
Ahab was notorious for it. He said, oh, I got all these hundreds of prophets. They're telling me I'm going to win the battle when I go out. He teams up with Jehoshaphat, who was king of the southern kingdom. Ahab's in the north. Jehoshaphat says, anybody else? I just don't. I don't think these guys have it. Ahab says, well, this other guy, Micaiah, but he always prophesies against me, so I don't like listening to him. Hey, church, we do that. We silence voices that don't agree with us rather than the opposite. And God's promise is that he's going to silence our voice and all the voices that are telling us untruth in order for us to hear his truth. It's encouraging for us. Now, God's fountain of truth uh, captures our affections, cleanses our minds, and it causes our relationships to change. Here, a father and mother will pierce their son if he speaks false prophecies. This is a reference to Deuteronomy 13 when God gave the law that prophets who, who were false, who, their word didn't come about, they were to be stoned. And it was, God's, it was meant to be, make sure that you're listening to the right people. It should be stoned. But here, this is a mother and father not stoning but piercing. This is family deep. That's how intimate this is. I wonder if this is pointing to when Jesus would say that he came to bring a sword to families rather than peace, he said, but in reference to the devotion to him, that our devotion to him would be superior to any devotion to family, any devotion to any loyalties that we would think are important in life. Our devotion to him is primary. So he's saying this mother and father desire truth so much that they'll put their son to death to maintain that devotion. The change in relationships in this family spills over as well to friends. When the light of truth is desired more than anything, we will lead friends to the fountain of living waters. And that leading oftentimes looks like correction. Proverbs 27, 6, faithful are the wounds of a friend. That's where we see this man saying, the wounds I, the wounds I received in, my, in the house of my friends. This guy was going out to be a false prophet. His friends said, no, 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 no. You're not believing truth right now. Believe the truth. And there were wounds to him because he had godly friends. We have to choose our friends wisely. But we also have to be committed to the progress of our friends to make sure that they're going to the fountain of living waters as well. Over and above, God is committed to our progress. He wants us to come to the fountain of living waters. And the next section of the chapter tells us how he brings us to that fountain. He does it with fire. In Scripture, fire can be described, uh, can describe the judgment of God or the activity of the Spirit. Sometimes both. Sometimes the Spirit is bringing out that judgment. But we see both represented here. The Father promised the Son to suffer, so the Spirit can sanctify. In verse 7, we have a reminder of the declaration of what God would do for us to save us. It's a huge declaration how God would open that fountain. Ultimately, God called on a sword to be against himself. Awake, O sword. He calls the sword to action against my shepherd. Now, is this Ezekiel as the shepherd? He was supposed to play the role Nope, against the man who stands next to me. See, all the other times in Ezekiel, uh, there was a man that was standing as a representative of Jesus. Now this verse is directly about Jesus. But this fire would also scatter. 
the sword would scatter. Strike the shepherd, and the sheep will be scattered. I will turn my hand against the little ones. While the work of Jesus opened the fountain to those who repent, it also is a means, Jesus' work is a, is a means of winnowing, uh, separating those who have genuine faith and those who do not. God said he would essentially drive away those who do not have genuine faith. Jesus picks up this image when he told the disciples they would run in fear when he was handed over to the chief priests and scribes, even though they had pledged their loyalty. We will not go anywhere. They all ran. Why? Because he was getting to a genuine faith in their hearts. God does that for us as well. He wants genuine faith, and it's, it's good for him to rattle the cage of our hearts, but it's also good for him to rattle the cage of the church so we know what genuine faith is. And a few, I think it was about a year ago when Pew Research came out with that the, the number of people in the United States that declare themselves Christian dropped. I'm not concerned about that. I'm actually happy for it because we know that's the reality. People who call themselves Christians are not genuinely saved. And we need to have a distinction. John the Baptist said Jesus, his axe is laid to the root of the tree. He is separating things. He's, he's threshing. He is threshold, a threshing floor. Hebrews 12 said, at that time his voice shook the earth. But now he has promised, yet once more I will shake not only the earth, but the heaven, also the heavens. This phrase, yet once more, indicates the removal of things that are shaken. That is, things that have been made in order that things that cannot be shaken may remain. Therefore, let us be grateful for receiving a kingdom that cannot be shaken. And let us offer to God acceptable worship with reverence and awe, for our God is a consuming fire. Why does he rattle our faith? So our man-made attempts to interact with him fall away. And what remains? What should remain? Jesus. Jesus is the only way to interact with God. God uses his fire to get us to progress in the faith. Now we see verse 8 of the whole land declares the Lord two-thirds will be cut off and perish. And one-third shall be left alive. So there's a remnant. There's a third that stays that are genuinely believing God. And what does he do with them? He puts them into the fire. After the scattering and separating from striking the shepherd, God gathers a remnant and puts them in a fire. I think this is a direct reference to the work of the Holy Spirit in us to sanctify us. But understand, the work of the Holy Spirit is to refine us and to test us. Refine what? Refine our faith and to test our faith. God brings us to his fountain. He reminds us, my fountain is here by turning up the heat in our lives so we feel the circumstances around us to make us go to him. He turns up the heat so we'll forsake our self-sufficiency and our self-reliances. He applies the fire to burn off the dross. When you turn the heat up on metals, all of the impurities float to the surface to where the metalsmith can just lop it off the top. Isaiah 48 says that God tried his people in the furnace of affliction. That's something God uses. Now, refining is miserably uncomfortable. We don't like to be refined. We try to avoid it. We like the smooth path. God, can you give me the smooth path? I would really like that right now. 
But when God refines us, he's accomplishing the refining of our affections so we can know God's love, eminent, alone. God turns up the heat by bringing about technical difficulties when your phone glitches and your computer doesn't work. God brings out those refining moments when you have mechanical difficulties. When your phone, or your, your car rather, seems to break in the most opportune time. The car never breaks in a good, like, oh, I have time to deal with this right now. Never. Why does he bring those? He wants us to go to his fountain. He, he, will, he will cause that relational confusion in our homes when husband and wife just aren't connecting and relationship with parents and kids feels off, something's not right. The relational confusion that happens in church, and our do I feel connected? Do I feel embraced by others? Am I embracing what something's not? I'm confused. Con confusion with extended family when they just can't figure out our Jesus thing and why we're so committed to it. Confusion in the workplace when there's antagonism because of the gospel. There's persecution, perhaps. But God brings those difficulties. He brings the confusion, and he brings struggle, and he'll bring that struggle physically. We hurt. We're in pain. And that, that could be emotional struggle that happens and, and experience, it evidences itself in a physical struggle. But why does he do that? He brings all the difficulties, confusion, and struggle to bring pride and anger to the surface of our lives, to bring pity and envy to the surface of our lives. So they remain? No. So he removes them. He cleanses. I love how Jim Elliott said in a prayer to God to remove the dread asbestos of other things. We always have other things that are clamoring for us. You know, you go down, you start to read the Bible, it's like, I'm going to do this, and you can't concentrate on one word because you're remembering everything you have to do today. You sit down to pray, and you're looking around at your house going, we had some organization that needs to happen right now in this house uh, I got to put prayer aside because I'm so distracted, but we have other things. We are on the go, and we run about constantly. And our prayer should be like Jamelian. I'll remove the asbestos. And God says, I I'm remove it, but here's what I'm going to do. I'm going to turn up the heat a little bit. So you feel it, but where is that supposed to take us? The fountain. We're supposed to go to that fountain so we can be swept away in the river, in the current of the Holy Spirit, so we can be carried along and we can experience that peace and joy and security that God has for us when He reminds us who He is to us. Now watch. He says, they'll call to me. End of verse 9. They will call upon my name. We always call upon God's name in the fire, right? Absolutely, we call. We're supposed to. But we're not calling to him. See, God turns up that heat, and we then say, God, I need you. And he says, this is exactly where I want you to be, because I want you to remember, I'm your God. And our response is a praiseworthy response. You are my God. He says it first. I will say, it's my people right there. They will say, that's our God. God reminds us as that fire intensifies and we get in the fountain and we're drinking and swimming in it, what's the result? 
we remember who we are as God's children. We remember and hear his, his pronouncement of love over us. And he says, I'm yours and you are mine. And that gives us the peace, the joy, the confidence, comfort, and security that we long for. God is a master metalsmith. He is strategic with his fire. And he will keep us in the fire until he sees his reflection in us. Amy Carmichael, I remember reading years ago that she said a silversmith will keep silver, like if it's a utensil or something, will keep that silver in the fire to the point that he can see his reflection. Then he knows now it's pure. All the impurities are out. And God does the same with us. We want that fire to be over real quick. Real quick. We are on that schedule. It's like a like microwave fire. Get it done, a couple minutes, we're good. God says, no, I'm leaving you in there because I want you to feel this because I want you to, in, the, in the moment, I'm with you, but I want you to understand what I'm going after. First Peter. The blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, according to his great mercy, has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead, to an inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled, unfading, kept in heaven for you, who by God's power are being guarded through faith for a salvation ready to be revealed in the last time. That's a great promise. A lot is awaiting God's people. But here's how we experience that. We rejoice. Though now for a little while, if necessary, you have been grieved by various trials. So that the tested genuineness of your faith, more precious than gold that perishes, though it is tested by fire, may be found to result in praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. God is bringing us in the fire. He's with us in the fire, just like Jesus with Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. He is with us. Why? So we go to that fountain. And it results in our praise. God, I love you. I want you. And I want to be carried along with you. I don't want to settle for ankle deep. I don't want to settle for waist deep. God, I want to be carried along. But we open ourselves and say, God, show me what that is. I give you myself. And I'm going to, I'm going to, I'm going to seek you in the ways and means of grace that you've afforded to me through your word and prayer and worship. God, I want this. I'm not letting you go until you make your name great in me. I'm not letting you go until, until I feel that security in your everlasting arms. We live in a cycle uh, of fountain and fire so that we know God is with us. And the result in either situation we find ourselves in, whether we're experiencing a fountain right now, things are going great, you, experience, you feel carried along, like you don't have... Uh, you don't have an explanation for the happiness and the joy that you're experiencing in life. That happens. And people are in that season. Or if it's a season of fire where you're just thinking, I have no idea what's happening. And my faith level right now is minuscule. Both situations, fountain and fire. You are God's child. And you are secure in his everlasting arms. And we have confidence that when we call on him in the fire, he's with us and he is reassuring his commitment to us. I believe the Lord wants us to conclude our time together with prayer for one another. Uh, when we, we're going to ask folks who are experiencing a fire 
I'm going to pray. I'm going to ask folks who are experiencing a fire that you would let us know. So the, the body of Christ, look, uh, part of friends being able to bring others to the fountain is by acknowledging, I'm in a fire right now, my faith level, pretty low. And I need to experience God in this moment in a unique way. And it allows the church to be the church, maybe to sense something from the Spirit, a word of of encouragement, a word of knowledge, or simply a prayer. Uh, You don't know how many times I have prayed over people, and then that person has said, I prayed exactly that the other day. And that's God telling us, I'm with you. I'm paying attention. But we need to call on him. In the fire, we need to call on him. So stand up with me. Let's get our hearts before the Lord in prayer. Lord, we ask for your Spirit's grace to cause pleas for mercy, uh, for faith levels that are weak. Lord, I ask that you would give us honesty with where we are in our relationship with you. Honesty to how we're experiencing life. Lord, help us in this moment. Investigate our own hearts to know where we we need the help of others to express, uh, to, to be able to come alongside of us, to bring us to your fountain. Ultimately, God, we want to experience your fountain. We want to experience your living waters. Bring us to that fountain. That's you. If, 